It's time now for the PDXO Wasp podcast, brought to you by the Open Web Application Security Project. The views of the guests do not necessarily represent the views of OWASP, their sponsors, and other stakeholders. Enjoy the show. John Anderson is a software security engineer with a passion for open source. He works for a really big Fortune 500 company here in Oregon, doing product security, and runs an open source project called Dataflow Facilitator for Machine Learning, or DFFML. He's also done product-level pen testing, secure design lifecycle consulting, and is currently trying his hand at Linux kernel hardening. John's a native Portlander, does Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and loves spending time in the great outdoors when there isn't a pandemic. John Anderson, thanks for the virtual visit with us today. All right, yeah, thank you, John. And it's a leap year weekend, right? Saturday, yes, yes, February 29th, for that matter? Uh-huh, yep, won't, won't see this day again for four years. Didn't we make an agreement four years ago if we weren't rich and famous, we would not do this? Now that we are rich and famous, we're doing it? Yes, I think so. I mean, we've been highly successful. It's It just comes <laughs> with the territory of being a John. Yeah, yeah, you got two Johns on today. That's another thing. Double the success. Yeah, absolutely. So, John, how did you get into security? Was this something that you always wanted to do? I actually got into security by accident. I was on a QA team at the place I was working and things got shuffled around. I ended up on the security team and uh, it was just uh, by happy accident that a lot of that test harnessing and setup and stuff like that that I had learned in that time really transferred over well to writing security focused tests. And then I kind of got into fuzz testing, doing fuzz testing for a while. And that was very much, you know, similar to QA type of stuff. And then as I got more experience doing fuzz testing and, you know, writing more applications myself as a developer, I sort of learned the things that one needs to know and the pitfalls that happen that sort of like, I don't know, I feel like a lot of people get guided to this security path because you make a lot of mistakes or you want to build a lot of different types of applications and, and you learn all the ways you can shoot yourself in the foot. Well, not all, but you continue learning them, right? And so that's kind of how I got into security was just by, by trying things and, and, and shooting myself in the foot a lot to know how do, you, how do you help others not shoot themselves in the foot. There is a difference, obviously, between just regular QA and, say, security testing. But I think a lot of people don't know that, particularly those that may be looking at hiring people. And obviously, there is some overlap uh, between the two. But if you were to, say, give someone advice who's maybe hiring somebody for their team, what would you tell them is the difference? What should they be looking for, say, from a, a security tester versus maybe a regular QA tester? I think that's definitely has to do with the sort of attacker mindset. And when you, a lot of, a lot of QA people that you'll see, I think, they're, you know, they just, they're concerned with the functional tests as they should be, right? But really what separates security people from other people is the, like, at least functionally, right, is, is the fact that security people are always thinking with this attacker mindset, like, how can I mess up your thing? Or how can I mess up my own application, right? Like, what are all the weird little edge cases that are interesting enough to cause a security problem rather than just, you know, a QA problem, right? And so you want someone who's really trying to think outside the box in a devious way. So deviousness is a good deviousness one. is a you know high highly good quality. High, high up there. People. Yeah. Yeah. You know they 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 have to be trying to break everything. You have an open source project called Dataflow Facilitator for Machine Learning or DFFML. But before we get to that, let's start with a few basic questions for some people who might not know. What are data flows and what is machine learning? Well, first I'll start with machine learning. And I think machine learning is, you know, really 
it's a it's a bunch of algorithms that are out there that have been developed over many past years that is now gained a lot of popularity because of neural networks and the advancements in you know making them train faster and so everybody's been able to you know train models faster and it's gotten a lot of hype because you know the the pace of advancement has accelerated but really what it boils down to is just you know you've got you know, various algorithms, which might just be, for example, with neural networks, a bunch of numbers in a matrix, and you're refeeding through data until the multiplications of that matrix give you the correct answer on the other side. And so that all sounds like kind of simple, and it really boils down to that at a lot of levels. But using machine learning has really, there's a very wide variety of ways that you can go and use machine learning in its current state with various open source projects in the, just on GitHub or wherever. And yeah, they all have different APIs and they all have various ways of getting data into the networks and into the models. And they have ways, various ways of deploying things. So this project kind of sprung from a need to iterate on machine learning models and try different models. And because different models within different frameworks have different APIs, we needed sort of this wrapper layer around that so that we could swap out one framework for another framework underneath to see what's giving us better accuracy without having to deal with, you know, okay, now I have to rewrite all this code to get the data from a different source or rewrite all this code because, you know, I'm tweaking some of the parameters on this model and I have to go change the source files. The idea is to, you know, abstract all that stuff away. And data flows are really this idea. It's it's kind of... This is something that's been around for a long time, but also has gained recent popularity. And the reason why it's gained popularity is for the same reason that containers and everything have gained popularity recently. The way the data flows are being deployed is very similar to the way that microservice architectures work, where you're chaining together these small services. Only with data flows, you typically have some kind of orchestration engine that sits on top. And that orchestration engine is going to be in charge of like which microservices get run and it may help you deploy various kinds of applications as a microservice. Ours is focused on Python and running Python scripts and Python functions at this time, but we're going to expand it to be sort of allow you to interconnect with your existing microservices and in other languages eventually. So the strength in just talking with you before regarding DFFML, it feels like this orchestration tool that's it's on steroids essentially, right? Yeah. Because you're doing all of these jobs asynchronously. Can you yeah. Describe that so a that's bit. Uh, yeah. Thank you. So that's a large part of the orchestration framework of DFFML is this data flow execution engine. And what that lets us do, the original intent with this was to allow you to generate data sets quickly and iterate on feature engineering. So basically the data, for example, if you're generating a data set by scraping a bunch of data, and then you have this, you know, the side of DFFML that does the models, which lets you iter, like it lets you choose different models to see which ones you have the best accuracy on. This data flow side is gonna make it really easy for you to iteratively choose what input data is going to give you the best data with those, you know, the models that you can also plug and play. And so all of this runs in this concurrent execution environment, which is, if you're familiar with concurrency, typically you have these event loops like with Node and with async IO with Python, which is what we're using. And within an event loop, all your networking gets handled by sort of the underlying framework, which is async IO. It, it allows you to do lots of network operations and handle the errors when they happen very well, as well as like the incoming data you get, it's event driven rather than like polling based. And so 
if you're doing a lot of things that involve scraping or sub-processes where you're sending work out to other threads, the event loop creates is very good for these I.O. bound problems where, you know, like generating data is largely I.O. bound because we're grabbing it from different sources, which are going to have to do some networking to get to. So with the machine learning and some of the, I guess, some of the workloads, right, we've also talked about beforehand, you could use this for an open source end tool or some sort of a risk prediction, like using SAS scanner, yeah. all related, of course, to security. Is that right? Yeah. And we've talked about this a little bit before and how, you know, using this execution engine that can help you generate different input data, we could go grab and correlate different things about like, say, open source repositories. So we could, you know, scrape the Git log and count the number of authors and see what the diversity of authorship is. So for example, like is a different person writing every line of code, which sort of indicates that there's a lot of different people working on the code base. And there's a very diverse, like that, that also indicates that there's probably a lot of different reviewers because it's not all the same people writing that are getting committed because everyone is committing code. And you can you could scrape all sorts of metrics about that code base, which is actually one of the examples that's on the documentation, which you can go through and, and see and run for yourself. But so yeah, we can use this tool to generate a lot of the information that we might think would be applicable to help us solving some problem. For example, is this open source repo maintained or not? And that is also the use case that's on the documentation. And we can feed through different input data by writing different scrapers until we figure out which scrapers that we need to generate the correct input data to go through the machine learning model that will give us a good accuracy. And we basically can just do this. What, what it allows us to do is have this very quick iteration on this process of, okay, write a little function that scrapes some data, scrape all the data on a bunch of repos, and then run it through the machine learning model, tell me if I got good accuracy. So we can iterate very quickly, which allows us to figure out what are the right inputs to produce a model that is accurate for whatever our task at hand is. You gave a presentation about this last year at B-Sides PDX, and people can watch that on YouTube. There's a B-Sides PDX channel. Yeah. And since then, you made some tremendous improvements. What are your plans for this? It sounds like like the perfect open source project. One is that you have this fantastic core framework, and I'm going to call it an orchestrator again. Yeah. But then you also have people that can contribute to it through these plugins, these scrapers. What are the future plans for this? Yeah. So, and actually, we've been involved in. We've got a. We've got a few contributors. We've been involved in the Google Summer of Codes. So we've had some students working on it over the last summer and over this summer. And like you were saying, we've got, you know, plugins to write some scrapers or you could write, you know, you could write anything to generate data. And we've also got plugins for models and we've got plugins for data sources. So we make it so that people don't have to open source whatever their, you know, their particular plugin is. For example, if you have a particular interaction that happens with your specific tables in your database of choice, you wouldn't have to open source that plugin to use the rest of the tool. You could just tell the tool, hey, my data is stored in this database. I wrote the plugin to interact with those specific tables. And then I can just pull DFFML and all the public open source plugins and then have it use my closed source plugin for whatever custom interaction I need. So we've been having a lot of students who are writing more machine learning models. And so that's expanding the, you know, the amount of underlying frameworks and things that you can do with the model side of things. We've had some recent natural language processing stuff go in and unsupervised 
provides learning as well. And as far as future plans, one of the things that we're working on is creating this sort of metastatic analysis tool, which we're calling Should I? And the idea is that you say, <laughs> well, you know, usually you're at your terminal and you're about to install something and you might say pip install Django, right? And the idea here is that you would instead of before you pip install something, you would say, should I install? Right. So same syntax, just should I install Django and should I would go and run a bunch of static analyzers for this project. And for Django, it's Python. So and it's maintained within a Git repository. So those Git scraping operations we talked about earlier, those would run as well as the static analyzer for Python, which is Bandit. And then we might run also the CVE checker for Python, which is safety. And then you could also overlay any closed source tools you had on top of those operations and, and add that into sort of the flow of should I, if you had some sort of you know internal tools that analyze Python. So we're going to build this extensible tool to do static analysis on an arbitrary code base. And that's sort of one of the main sub projects going on within DFFML. Oh, that's great. So how can people get involved if they want to work on the project or just kick the tires? So yeah, getting involved is is easy, hopefully. We've got a Gitter channel, which is kind of like IRC, but it's web-based. Actually, I think you can connect over the IRC protocol if you wanted to. Um, and we've also got, we're on GitHub at Intel slash DFFML. And if you Google for DFFML, it may be a ridiculous name, but it is the only thing that comes up if you Google for it. So that's a benefit. And we've got lots of open issues. There even they're arranged by the estimated time to completion, ranging from, you know, extra long would be rewrite the whole code base in a different language. Medium would be, hey, you're going to make a change and it's going to affect a few of these plugins that are maintained within the core code base. And small would be, you know, hey, maybe make a couple line fix here and there, or, you know, we need some documentation updated. Can you tweak this test case? So you can basically just pick and choose and say, hey, how much time do I have? What do I want to do with this project? And we'll put up the links Great. so people can Great. see it too from the podcast. With that said, I, I want to ask a really quick question here because it sounds like you have a lot of experience in open source. What kind of, if somebody has an idea, uh, just any idea for open source, what, what advice would you give them if they wanted to say kick off a project? Yeah, since I've learned a lot about open source and, and how do you create a community. And I got to say, it's the one thing that all developers hate to do, but you got to write documentation. You really have to make it easy to understand what your project is doing. And you have to explain that because people will not want to dive through your whole code base and you can't blame them. No one goes on GitHub and says, what code base am I going to read in its entirety today? You know, you want to go through and you want to make it very inviting. So think about the things like if you if you happen to browse the trending page on GitHub ever, you you know, all those repos, they're usually very inviting, right? You come, you read the readme, they're like, okay, this is what we do. They've got a clear mission statement. They've got clear, you know, objectives of like, what this, what is this project's problems that it solves? And, you know, what, how, what are the open issues that need help? So make sure that you make your tasks bite-sized enough to get a few people onboarded. And the good first issue label, this is another little trick that I've learned, but if you label a issue with good first issue, then people will see it when they're scrolling through and they'll say, it'll GitHub will tell them this many issues need help. And they'll know that these are kind of good things they can get started on. But other than that, yeah, we also hold weekly meetings which I've found to be a helpful thing for people because, you know, some people will talk on the chat, but 
at other times, it really helps to have that sort of virtual interaction where you can share your screen and you can pop up and talk to people and they can say, hey, you know, I was working on this. I don't know how to progress further. And you could then, you know, show them because, it, you know, it's your code base and, and you can walk through that and help them get unstuck. Right. So sort of like office hours. So, John, do you have any upcoming events or things to plug? Actually, just very much related to that tangent, there's a podcast called uh, Open Source Contributors that is just getting started that asked me to come talk about more about the process of an open source project and what it's like to you know, be involved in open source and run an open source project. And so I'll be speaking on that. Cool. And send us a link if, when you yeah, do get we'll it, do. once you get the information for it. John Anderson, thank you for talking with us today especially on a leap weekend. Thank you very much, John Wyman. To hear this podcast again, visit anywhere a podcast is played. For more information, go to owasp.org forward slash www forward slash chapter forward slash Portland.